us to take our Bibles at this time and turn to two passages, the latter of which in Matthew 21 will be our text for this morning's service about the cleansing of the temple. The first of which is John chapter 2, where is recorded the first cleansing of the temple by Jesus soon after his public ministry began. John 2. And verse 13 is where we'll begin. And we'll read through the end of the chapter 25. The word of God. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew that was what was in man. Thus far we read this account of the first cleansing of the temple of Jesus beginning of his public ministry. Now we go to Matthew, where there's a second cleansing of the temple and a record of the second, a second record of the cleansing of the temple. Matthew 21 and verse 20. We'll read through verse 16 and focus especially in this sermon on verses 12 through 14. Verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? That's as far as we'll read of this second cleansing of the temple by Jesus. And as I said, the first was at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry when he was about 30 years old, recorded in John chapter 2, and you'll note some of the differences of that narrative there. For example, that in John it said that Jesus took a whip of cords to drive the money changers out and the, the, the sacrifice sellers Here we read of none of that in the second cleansing of the temple. The second one is just at the end of Jesus' life. There's maybe five, six days left before Jesus goes to the cross. It's the second day of his um, uh, Passion Week. And it will be that this king now reveals himself as the priest, the priest of God. In fact, there are several significant revelations here of which I would have you uh, hear and of which I will speak. The first is that there's a brilliant flash here of God. 
God is revealed in his holiness, and he will not stand any unholiness, especially in the worship of God. And the second revelation is of Jesus Christ, who is God and who is Messiah. And the great authority and power of God is revealed here in a, in a, a brilliant, uh, light-shining way as he drives the money changers out and the sacrifice sellers out with the word of his power. But then there is revelation here about worship, and it's by way of negative. There's a worship here that's despicable in the eyes of God, or a worship that's being hindered by despicable practices here as they corrupt the, the, the traffic, or they make traffic in holy things. But there's something here for us as well. And so, of revelation of God and of Jesus Christ, and of worship, we would now speak, and may God give us to hear. There is a significant revelation here of God. Why would we be surprised at that? The Bible is all about this revelation of God from beginning to end. At the Bible study at Calvin College, we're, we're reminding ourselves of that as we go through the various themes of of the history of God's redemption, and remind one another that in the very creation and on, there is this light that shines of the living God of his word. So here, it all has to do with God's house. Actually, the one that Jesus now cleanses from iniquity is the third such house of God in history. The first was built, we know, by Solomon. Seven years it was in the making. And the glory of that house, the great thing of it, was that God was in the house. God was home, always at home. And he would reveal this in special occasions by what's called the Shekinah glory, the resting place of God glory, the shining light over the holy place in the Holy of Holies, over the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Testimony, and shining indeed it was. It was the shining of God. It was a revelation to Israel and to no other place of the greatness of God and his glory. In fact, the book of Romans reminds us that to Israel alone was given the glory of God and the revelation of it. And Paul reminds the Romans to whom he writes of the great privileges that Israel had. He says, as he's wishing that he himself would be cursed from Christ for his brethren, his countrymen's sake, according to the flesh, the Jews. He says this, does Paul, Romans 9 and verse 3. I wish I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed. Amen. Amazing. He mentions the glory here. And that is the outstanding blessing that Israel had. And it was this glory of God that was revealed, not only in the prophets and the priests and the kings and the word they brought, not only in the ordinances of itself that God had instituted, but in himself shining in this glorious way in the holy place. Oh, no, wherever, no, in no other way, in no other place was such a glory ever known. Now, now that's amazing. Because we read in the psalmist, the heavens declare the glory of God. Isn't there glory there? Yes, indeed. The glory of God in this special way he has of revealing himself to be the creator, and there is no other God besides him. But the glory of the temple was the glory of the God who was with the people, of the God who's above creation who comes down into it in a remarkable way. And to make a worshiping people and a place where they could worship and a way that would provide access to him. The people of God were singularly blessed. That's why, with the mention of the glory, God 
speaks through Paul and mentions the blessing of the covenants, the promises of God. The relationship that he entered into with that people, sons of Abraham, and with no other. So that's the first temple. The second temple was built after the captivity. Remember the first temple, children, who knows their sacred history? When Israel was led to captivity into, into captivity in Babylon around 600 and so B.C., in 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed. Well, after that, in the return, Zerubbabel was given by God to build a second temple. The only problem was this was greatly diminished in its glory, and the people, the aged people who had seen the other temple, they wept. Remember that? It was also greatly diminished in its glory because there was no Shekinah glory there anymore, no special glory of God that whereby he would show his presence in that special, special, shining light way. Well, so that's the second temple. Third temple, you say? Well, some people have debated this, and they call this temple that Jesus was now cleansing the second temple. Fact is, though, that this second temple under Zerubbabel had been defiled, the presence of heathen over the course of the four or five hundred years, and it had fallen into disrepair, and it was indeed an inglorious thing compared to Solomon's temple, and there wasn't any glory of the Shekinah here. But however, let me tell you, it wasn't because Israel didn't try to make it glorious. And they used Herod. Somehow they used Herod, or Herod used them, or whatever, to make this place where Jesus was now cleansing things Wonderfully glorious, humanly speaking. Your pastor learns things in the study. Isn't that good? It's good that I learn some things so that we can learn some things and we can be excited about being students of the Bible. Well, I learned a lot of things about the, the temple under Herod that took 46 years for him to make. It was about finished, if not finished, when Jesus came on the scene. It was huge, for one thing. The old temple was built on Mount Moriah, so was this. This is one of those holy hills of, of Israel, of Jerusalem, rather. Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered first Isaac on, on, on the mount there, according to the command of God. But here Herod had taken it upon himself to, to fix up the temple and to make it really a wonder of the world, uh, a kind of architectural, religious monument to what men can do, and that's the problem, it was what men could do. Not saying, though, that God was not pleased with the worship itself that was offered there. Even as at the first temple and at the second temple, God received the worship of the people and there was still a priesthood, so it wasn't Jesus' day. That's why he honored it with his presence. And that way, that's why in this text even he still calls it his father's house. And when he was 12, he was there and he was asking questions. Well, anyway, this temple was, was quite glorious and for its size on the hills of Jerusalem. And you know, to fit it all, and it was made lavishly and way beyond what Solomon had ever been instructed to build, to fit it all, they, they build... They built walls around the entire city, or at least that Mount Moriah part of the city, whereby they could fill in the top, which was all slanted and wasn't, couldn't be a place where you could have worship uh, suitably. They filled it in. They made the walls, and one side of it were 600-foot-high walls. And they'd fill in with whatever they had, with whatever dirt and so and rocks, so that there could be a kind of a leveling out and a, a place made for a suitable place of worship. And they, they made and added to the holy of holy place and to the holy place and to the court of the Israelites and so on, other courts and other places and other embellishments. They, for example, made walls around this temple 25 feet tall upon the wall that was the foundational wall, 25 feet tall. There were gates, no less than nine of them, some fabulous. One was called Beautiful, which was 75 feet high. 
That's huge, twice the size of a building, a normal uh, building or house. 75 feet tall and made out of Corinthian brass, we're told, to adorn the place in its looks as a place worthy of not only the Jews, but of the Gentiles worshiping. For this was the house of prayer, the house of prayer of the nations, according to the promise to Abraham, that in him all nations would be blessed. Well, there were elaborate porches covered, and they were all along the walls, some two or three thick porches, and there would be places to walk, and there would be marble floors, and it was really a fantastic place. Long stairways leading up to the holy place and so on. So there were these places. And there were the burnt offerings that were offered and the candlestick and the table and the incense in the holy place outside of the most holy place, separated from the rest by the veil. Besides that, there was the court of Israel outside of the temple proper. There's a whole different name called for that temple proper. But then there was the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. This is significant because this is where we see Jesus entering and finding the corruption, the court of the Gentiles, the outermost part of the temple of Israel. The revelation here is of God, God with the people. And the reason I point out that this is the third temple, I make a point of that, this is really this elaborate thing of Herod, a third temple, not the first given according to the word of God, not the second of Zerubbabel, but this third thing refabricated uh, out of Herod's own mind and according to his own idea of glory. But there's this third temple where God himself is still accepting the worship of God. And it's all to remind the people and us of how long-suffering God is. The people who had the presence of God did not worship God as they ought, and they went into captivity because they, well, they went after idols. They went after idols. And after the second temple was, was made by Zerubbabel and so on, and they began the worship, and they began to write and so on, there was still this falling away. So that by the time Jesus came, the, the voice of the prophets had been all but silenced. There was a famine of the word of God, and the, the words of men had substituted for the words of God with regard to God and with regard to worship. And Jesus walks on the scene as the prophet and the priest and the king to set it all straight. But it is, I say, the very existence of this temple and the worship which was honored by Jesus' presence even though he had lots to say against it, bespeaking the long-suffering of God, which, however, was at its end. One of the very next things that Jesus will do in this Passion Week is curse the fig tree, reminder that Israel is no longer the people of God. The Jews are no longer people of God. God will be turning to the nations to provoke his elect Jews to jealousy, to be sure, but so that there will be no, no point of a temple anymore. It will be destroyed in 70 AD, but for now, Jesus has something to say. Something that, if it were possible, would, would shine the glory of God all the more over and against the sinful people of God and their sinful worship. The people at this time had made a mockery of worship. They'd made a house of, of God into a place of merchandise, Jesus says. You know that the outer court of the Gentiles, especially at times of sacred feasts when Thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews would be gathered together as it was now at the Passover. House of God at that point in 
this outer court was called the Bazaar of Annas, a bazaar, like B-A-Z-A-A-R, place of, of, of selling things and selling crafts and selling sacrifices and, and selling salt and meat offerings and doves and pigeons and lambs and so on, and out of which they make some money. Well, let's get into that a little bit. At this time, Jesus comes, and he comes to the outward court of the Gentiles, uh, into which court alone they could go. You know, there was a wall preventing the Gentiles from coming any further up the hill toward the holy place, belonging just to the Israelites. And if they stepped over that wall, that wall wasn't very tall, we're told, but if they stepped over that, they'd be killed. There were centuries around there. There were guards. They guard the worship of God. The problem was they weren't guarding their hearts. And they allowed for this trafficking in religious things in the temple of God. There were two kinds of transactions, especially, that were going on. First, the money changers. People would come from foreign lands, Jews and others from foreign lands, call them the Jews of the dispersion, the diaspora. And they'd come with other currency, and, and often the coins of the other nation's currency would be stamped to indicate the heathen gods. So the coinage was not accepted by the Jews at that time for these purposes of worship. And so they exchanged those coins for something equivalent, and that would be the Jewish currency. And at this time, we're told, it was especially the time of the Passover and before when people would pay their tax, their temple tax called the half-shekel tax, a certain amount of money that all the Jews, 20 years, all the male Jews, 20 years old and upward, had to pay every once, once a year, and which people would often pay when they'd come to the Passover because it was convenient they could get it all done. Well, at this time, and Jesus notes this, there were money changers, and like the bank, if you're going to go to France and you get French currency instead of uh, American dollars and so on, there may be a, a, a small fee or maybe a large fee. At the time here, the money changers would gain a fee called the Colban. And so they'd have this profit that they were making in the outer court. And then there was the sacrifice sellers. Jesus, or it's just mentioned here, doves. Uh, no doubt there were the ones who sold other kinds of sacrificing for to cleanse yourself. You needed to offer a sacrifice to worship and to provide atonement for yourself and your family and so on. The priests would help. And so this also was something from which the money changers not only, but the sacrifice sellers were making a little profit. You see, the people could buy lambs and wool and, and, and salt and so on, whatever they need for sacrifices outside the holy place. They could have brought it from their own land where they came from. But this was so much more convenient. It was right there. Besides, there would be those priests who would walk around, and others perhaps, who would declare that what these sellers were selling was, was pure, was unblemished, an unblemished dove. In the worship of God, they still held to this, that you can't have a, a dove with a broken wing or a lamb with a broken leg or something else. It had to be pronounced to be worthy of an offering to God. So they're still maintaining that kind of piety. So people would know that they would get a lamb that would be accepted when they then offered their lamb. It's like people today do, Jews today do. They pronounce certain food by a blessing of the rabbi, kosher for Passover. You've probably seen that. I think we even have kosher salt. I don't know why, but it tastes pretty good. But these were designed, these pronouncements of these things, to have a semblance of purity, and alas, however, it was corrupt. 
The whole business was corrupt. And Jesus is not here mincing words or anything else and maybe identifying some of it that was not corrupt. All of these money changers and sacrifice sellers have got to go. Why? Were they all thieves, as he says? Were they all together a house or a cave of thieves? Were they all those with bad motives? I don't think so. But many were making money. And this, in fact, is one of the first instances of simony, uh, at least in the New Testament. And simony from Simon Magus, who tried to get the Holy Spirit from the apostles that he might gain a popularity and money, no doubt, out of religious stuff. This simony was making a gain on other people's piety. It's plagued the church throughout since. There's a trafficking in clerical garb and clerical titles and so on. You sell a title in the Middle Ages. You sell the title of bishop and so on to a man who has enough money and he will get the title and you will get the money. Well, here it is now and it's going on in the house of God. People were robbing people, taking advantage of the poor, the ones who'd come perhaps from many miles, even if it was to the outermost part of Israel itself, many miles. And they didn't drive up in corvettes and, and wild horses and tame horses and anything else. They didn't take the train. They walked. Quite a few of them are rode donkeys, these worshipers of God. But beloved, though that's what people think is the main thing here, I don't. I think the main sin here is that these people were robbing God. Malachi speaks of that in chapter 3 and verse 8. Robbing God. And there, the sin is not paying the tithes and offerings, I suppose. But here, it's a reference to this whole business of daring to corrupt the worship of God, to distract the people from the worship of God by all of this business in the temple court. This is a house of prayer, Jesus notes, and the prophets noted. It's a house of prayer. It's a place where, uh, of all the places, God says, God is in the holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. Enough of the squawking of the animals. Enough of the hawking of the hawkers. We come to hear God. So the whole business, some or much of which was corrupted by the means of making a buck or a shekel, is nothing compared to the honor of God that was being denied. And Jesus Christ comes on the scene to remind the people just how holy is this God and his Father. And he does that, and at the same time, he reveals who he himself is, and that's my second point. A revelation here of the wonderful Christ of God. The Jews were those who were amazed at the wonderful things that he had done. The chief priests and scribes in verse 15, they saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying and so on, but they were really missing it. The wonderful things that he did, and before we get to that, we have to remember, were only reflections and manifestations of the wonderful God and Savior that he was and is. See, many people, even today, they speak of what Jesus does. What would Jesus do, says the bracelet, WWJD. What did he do, some people like to say. What is he doing? That's all great, of course. But who is he is the most important question to answer. He is God. And he is God's son, as we'll see this afternoon, declared to be God's son 
in the resurrection not only, but here in the temple, the most holy place. He is the one, after all, who is the glory of God, John says. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is no mere Shekinah revisiting the temple. This is God incarnate. Wow. They only knew the brightness of the glory of God, Hebrews says. And Colossians reminds us that in him the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Now that's, that's light. That's the shining forth of God in all of its power. I'll even say this. This is the bright, brightest that God is revealed in that Son who now shows himself to be not only the prophet, the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, or Gal- from Nazareth of Galilee, verse 11. He's going to show himself the priest and the king of salvation. And especially he, he goes to the temple to remind the people, and he doesn't go to the, some palace of Herod or whatever or Pilate, but he goes to the temple to remind the people that truth of the donkey that he probably and his mother had sent back where he'd gotten them at Bethphage. Now he's riderless, or he is without a ride. To remind them of the nature of his kingdom, spiritual, has to do with spiritual truth, reconciliation has to do with God, with his people, the, the heart of the essence of the gospel to Israel revealed it, and now being revealed, acted out, presented by this one still in his humiliation, but who shines forth glory here as perhaps no other time and with regard to any other miracle. There's the glory of God's son's zeal Fulfilled here, John says, the fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 9, the zeal of your house has eaten me up, has consumed me, says the King James Version. He is driven, is Jesus. It's striking. We read in Mark chapter 11 and verse 11, and this is what has caused people some confusion, that Jesus, the first day when he entered Palm Sunday, he looked around the temple And he saw certain things, but it was evening, getting toward evening, and he went back to Bethany that night. So Mark is alluding to the fact that he came back to the temple the next morning. It's the second day. Be that as it may, can you imagine the night in which Jesus was reflecting upon what he'd seen in the temple and the sacrilege and the blasphemy? Now it's coming out. He's burning with passion. This is my father's house. And I am its glory. And how dare you distract and hinder the people of God's worship. Representative of others who've led the way in cleansing the house of of God of, of all iniquity. Nehemiah, for example, in chapter 13 rebuilding the walls, but understanding that we need a temple. We need the presence of God if we're going to please him. No matter how much we circle the wagons or build the walls, there's got to be God in the midst or we're nothing. Take heed to that, beloved. Here he is fulfilling all the prophets, and there's, there's, it seems like there's dozens that are fulfilled at this time. Isaiah 56 Haggai 2, Jeremiah 7, they all speak of this one who suddenly comes into the temple temple, and he's a presence to be reckoned with because he's God with the people and he's God who's not happy. And of all the places to go, he goes right at the temple and right where the people of God ought to have been 
faithful to God and to their call to worship. And we have here, in fact, beloved, judgment beginning at the house of God, which is what the prophets have always said and which the New Testament echoes. Judgment begins at the house of God, and it shall begin at the house of God at the end of time. Where there were a people that went by the name of people of God, and where there are among them hypocrites, God is the most angry. And here he is the most angry, and it's a kind of preliminary judgment day. Jesus. And note, before the miracle even of the healing of the blind and the lame, which is mentioned in Matthew, there's the miracle of what happens when Jesus speaks. Notice John, the first cleansing of the temple, had Jesus with a whip and cords. Here, no mention of the whip and cords at the final temple cleansing, but just a man with a word, a man who is the word, a man who is the word of the holy God. And the man who speaks from heaven through his own voice box and his own heart to hearts of men and who, whose hearts are here convicted, and this is the miracle, so that there's no need for violence, though this is holy violence. Just a word. And everyone runs away. And he scatters the, the tables and all of their wares and so on. He throws it all on the ground. And, and all the money you can imagine... The people run for their lives. I don't know what they were running for, but they were running away from Jesus. That's for sure. He drove them all out like a herder who's saying to those who were erstwhile sheep, sheep no more. They don't belong here. And everything they thought was going to be not only true religion, but a little bit of profit on the side. He rebuked by his scathing words. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And it's not just by certain corrupt practices and and taking a little bit too much or even anything for yourself, but it's the very fact that you would mingle your commerce with God's call to focus first on Him and not the world, not to your gaining, but to God's glory ought you to be driven. There's a miracle here. The miracle of the Son of Man, the Son of God, the glory of God who drives out anything that is unholy. Here's the God who cannot behold iniquity except to punish it, even iniquity and especially iniquity in his house. Well, then, of course, there's the miracle of the worship, or, or excuse me, of the healing, mentioned, I think, only here in Matthew. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The others were shaken in their boots. They weren't going to go near that man again. Striking, he had three years ago cleansed the temple and they hadn't learned their lesson. And here now, they're learning a lot, another lesson, hopefully. But the ones who need Jesus, they come. They came to him in the temple. Isn't that beautiful? Here's the miracle of grace. Here's the miracle of the gospel. Anybody who comes to Jesus and needs Jesus and expresses his need and her need for Jesus will not be denied. So people come who are blind and who are lame. And of course, it's impossible for them to come alone. The blind man can't see and the lame man can't walk, but somehow they come or brought but the focus is on Jesus, you see, and, and all eyes are on him or will be on him when they're healed of their blindness. 
Just like Daniel, remember, when he was brought into captivity, he'd pray three times a day facing Jerusalem, facing the temple, hundreds of miles away. These people face Jesus. They, they go to him. And this is the first point of the final point of my sermon. There's a revelation of worship here and the worship which must be looking to Jesus. Did you come here looking for Jesus, beloved? The beauty of Jesus in the new covenant is that you don't need to go to Jerusalem you may not go to Jerusalem to try to worship God in a special way there as if God is specially going to anoint you and, and sanctify you in incredible ways because you've gone to the so-called holy land. No, he says, when he's speaking to the woman at the well, time will come that they won't need a Gerizim or a, Jer or a Jerusalem or a Comstock Park or whatever but they will worship in spirit and truth who worship him who is the temple of the Lord after all. And that's what we must do. First lesson, you come to church or you leave this place and you go back home and you will and then you go to your workplace or wherever you're going, look to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And come as those who are not trying to compete for a place and for favor with God, but are those who find in Jesus the only way to God. That's it. And all those stairs, you know, to climb up the mountain, Mount Moriah. I don't know if it was handicap friendly. But it was certainly the place that God had ordained. It was almost inaccessible and only by degrees because the high priest only once a year could come into the presence of God. But Jesus has changed all that. Handicap friendly, of course. Sinner friendly. Because Jesus comes not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And it's worldwide. All kinds of people come to Jesus and worship, and they ought to. And it ought not to be that there's only a certain color, only a certain nation, only an exceptional nation, only a nation with a Christian heritage, or only a people that has a Christian tradition or a Reformed tradition. They come to worship God. All kinds of people. And the first thing they have in common is they look to Jesus, they come in the name of Jesus, and he they know is the new and living way who announces even at, 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 in these days that he's on his earth that he will be the temple that's broken down on Calvary. This, in fact, this announcement that he would be this temple and that he would destroy this temple, referring to his body, or they would destroy this temple. And his cleansing of the temple, that was the occasion for those Jews to gnash their teeth and say, we're going to get rid of this guy. It's really no much different than Ephesus, where Paul entered and he combated the idols and Diana and the silversmiths who made a a living and trafficking that religious uh, myth of Diana. Here, the Jews, by their making money and profiting off a of religion, were kind of like in their frenzy, great is Jehovah of the Jews and great is Jehovah of the Jews and the people of God. The people of God are we. And beloved, that's the same kind of stinking pride that can destroy a church and destroy a soul. We've arrived. We have the right prescription for entering the presence of God and the Gentiles can come in the outer court. 
And of course, we mix the worldliness with religion that is such the nature of the beast in us, isn't it? And it fi we find a little bit of the world, a lot of God, becomes more and more of the world and less and less of God, and pretty soon, there's no God. No power. Form of godliness, but we deny the power thereof, practically speaking, because, well, we're more interested in being schooled in the things of politics and entertained by all the games that people play and fornicate by. Be Christ-centered, which means word-centered, and, of course, a word and worship that's word-regulated. As we form, we call this the regulative principle of worship because much passes that would pass for worship today is not regulated by the word, but it's regulated by the popular opinions of the streets around the churches. Do you know that? Some churches who are seeker-friendly and seeking to be mega, big churches in the physical sense of the word, they'll take a poll of the community Besides offering lattes and everything else in their services and in the narthex, they will take a poll. What do you want in worship? What do you want in worship? Well, we want this and we want that and we want to make sure there's a kid's service and we want to make sure that the sermons are maybe 10 minutes long and you have to sound like the Reader's Digest and you can't be longer than the sitcom and you got to be nice. The 11th commandment of evangelicalism, thou shalt be nice. No, you shall be holy. Thus saith the Lord, you shall be holy. Not that we are not being all things to all men in the house of God. But when the focus is on pleasing people, and even, I say this guardedly, even when the focus of worship is on getting people saved, you miss it. The worship is for those who are saved. Now, a side benefit, a great blessing, is that people even who worship and who say they are saved are saved sometimes because they've never been visited by the Holy Spirit and born again. But the purpose of gathering for worship on the Lord's Day is to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. And not to get involved in our projects in all of this. You see, there's a gain that people would make, not just of money, but of members or whoever else, which has nothing to do with worshiping in spirit and in truth. Worshiping in spirit and truth is when we go to Jesus and say, have pity, I'm blind, I'm lame, I'm dead. I blew it, I'm sorry, and you're great in your mercy. I know that, I know that. And for so long, I've just been without any rudder on my boat. I'm just floating here and there, drifting I don't know why I'm here. Well, beloved, this gospel is for all the lonely people thinking that life has passed them by. Look to Jesus. Yes, elders regulate the worship. And you know the result? of such a worship of God that's revealed right here, really, negatively, but also positively, is that there will be the two things that we find in this worship here. There will be cleansing, and there will be healing. Negatively, there, there's cleansing. Every one of us ought to have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus here and the application of truth to your life. You hopefully are more humble than when you walked in, and hopefully I am. That's called being cleansed of the dirt of pride and evil and lust and unbelief and self-righteousness. And the church ought to make sure the gospel is purely preached for that, 
for there to be the purification of the people of God there. And the minister himself has got to bear the fruit of himself being cleansed by the sanctifying power of the truth. Indeed. And the elders who watch the walls of Zion have got to make sure that the Gentiles don't get beyond the inner court and into the consistory room or as a deacon or as those who fraternize among you but who are not the people of God and be glad, beloved, for a consistory that actually stands for holiness so that we and our children might stand together and worship God and give him glory together. But then there's healing of every soul of God. Healing. Go up to Jerusalem, beloved. Every day on the Lord's day and up to God in Jesus. That's the revelation of God and Jesus and worship. Walk in its light and worship. Amen. We thank you, Father, for the truth as it is in Jesus revealed in the second cleansing of the temple in the day when he's concerned for your glory and not thinking about what it would cost him as if he would draw back from that paying the price of his blood Lord help us to be done with doves help us to be done with trying to make a profit off of religion Help us to be done with any formality that has no heart to it. Bless this congregation with this sense of your presence now. And this worshipful life always for we and our children in the honor of your name. May we be as Jesus would cleanse from evildoers the city and the house of our God and ourselves would be cleansed and healed. Oh Lord, help us to see both and to know your holiness and your mercy at the same time. And Jesus Christ revealed our great Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.